The key economic releases affecting fixed income yields. Insights into sectors influencing fixed income securities. How AAM plans to capitalize on these themes for your fixed income portfolio. The Portfolio Fix is a podcast series featuring members of AAM's investment and portfolio management team. We will discuss the timely issues affecting the fixed income investments of our insurance clients. Welcome to episode five of the Portfolio Fix, a podcast series from AAM. My name is Patrick McGeever and I'm a member of the investment team. Today we'll be speaking with Efrain Panic about the auto sector, but first we wanted to provide our regular update on key economic releases. Uh, unfortunately, Marco is unavailable today, but in his absence, we have Scott Edwards. So welcome, Scott. Uh, thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure yeah, to be here. Good. Um, Scott has been with AAM for 17 years and has more than 30 years of investment experience. He wears many hats here. He's the Director of Structured Products. He's also a Senior Portfolio Manager, and he's a key member of our Economic Committee. So, Scott, last week, Marco highlighted several releases we needed to focus on, uh, those being the ISM reports and the employment numbers. So I was hoping you might be able to tell us uh, what you thought about the ISM numbers. Uh, they were a bit concerning, weren't they? Well, they certainly were. If you look at the ISM uh, manufacturing index that was released really two weeks ago, uh, it was really quite disappointing. Now, first thing we think of is that manufacturing is not that large a factor in our economy anymore. Uh, but fact is, it's maybe about 10% of the economy. Uh, but that indicator tends to have a, a really strong predictive track record of predicting economic activity going forward. Uh, that was a quite a weak release. As I said, we were expecting about a 50, 50.0 uh, release on that number. It came in at 47.8. Uh, what's significant about that is any number below 50 ind- indicates a contracting economy. So certainly at face value, very worrisome. Uh, the ISM non-manufacturing, so if you think services, was released just last week, and that certainly makes up a far greater percentage of our economy. And that number, while not quite as disappointing as the uh, manufacturing survey, uh, came in at uh, 52.6 and was well below what was expected by the market. Uh, so it kind of confirms that weakness that we saw in the manufacturing release uh, and is certainly an indicator that things are trending down. Again, though the non-manufacturing was above 50, so still an expansionary territory, uh, it is a warning symbol nevertheless. So we put it together. It's really kind of a confirming signal that things are getting weaker and certainly a, something the Federal Reserve needs to be thinking strongly about as they face their meeting at the end of the month. Yeah, from my perspective, I thought the non-manufacturing number was was probably more concerning between the two, even though it was still contra- or expansionary because... It was kind of out of left field how weak it was. Well, that's true. And, and if you look over time, it's the uh, even though the smaller portion of the economy, that nan- non-manufacturing number really has had a much better track record of protecting weak future weakness of the economy. So it's something well worth thinking about. Okay. Um, what about the employment figure? Was Did that provide any um, relief to the market? or? Yeah, it really did. Uh, the employment came in at, uh, we added 136,000 jobs uh, last month a little below expectations, but there was a healthy revision of 45,000 jobs. So all in all, you know, a, a really pretty strong number. 
And that what's so important about that is the consumer clearly has been driving the economy. So to focus on the consumer, you really got to look at uh, how uh, both wage growth and job growth uh, have been performing. Uh, obviously, that's going to really drive consumer confidence and, and what sort of spending you see from the consumer. Uh, with job growth have been averaging about 157,000 over the last three months, you know, that's still fairly solidly in the expansionary camp. Uh, the base case growth in the labor force is about 125,000 jobs. So even at that rate, if we can continue around that 150, 157,000 or more, uh, it shows that it will continue to show contraction um, in the available workforce that's not currently employed or marginally employed. And certainly is going to indicate we're going to have continued downward force on the uh, unemployment rate. So you've got to think that as long as that stays in place, the consumer should continue to be a healthy supporter, a big spender, and a, and a big factor in, in driving GDP going forward. Okay, so it sounds like what we're saying is then we don't expect there to be uh, any type of consumer-led recession here then in the near term. You know, we really don't see one. Um, GDP certainly has slowed down over the course of the year. I think we're looking at finishing solidly around 2% for the prior last quarter or two of the year. Unfortunately, for the war coming into 2020, I'm seeing a lot of estimates that are dropping down on an annualized basis into the upper one, say 1.7, 1.8%. And that certainly is a concern. Uh, again, I think the key element will be the consumer seems to be the only factor in the economy that's still really basically firing on all cylinders. As long as that's the case, I don't see a protracted drop in GDP where you really have to entertain a notion of a recession. Uh, but that also means that any dislocation to that confidence, be it slower wage growth, weaker employment ad, or if you start to see pressure on corporate profits, uh, such that you start to see cutbacks either in hours worked or in jobs outright, could really shake the confidence of the consumer. And, and now that could be a problem. But as I see right now, I just don't see that on the uh, in the landscape. Okay. So between the disappointing ISM numbers the relatively uh, stable employment figure. What does this mean for the Fed? What do they do next? Well, certainly I think there's a high probability that we'll see an incremental 25 basis point move at the end of the month. Uh, question is, is the market has always been factoring in. They sort of kind of go to a, a once we get the Fed to make one move, we'll go factor in two more. We're at a point now that if we do in fact get that move at the end of October, uh, that'll be the three moves, and as uh, Chairman Powell has indicated, they've really had this notion of a mid-cycle adjustment. Historically, back in the 90s, that meant three easing moves, and that we will be the third move here at the end of the month. What then? I think the Fed would like to pause and see what the impact of the moves they've made have actually done to the economy. Certainly, looking at the employment numbers and growth, there certainly is no reason why they should be terribly concerned that recession is imminent and they need to do more, but the market is really putting pressure on them. Um, when we talk about a normalized yield curve, you want to see a positively slow curve, and the market believes that they need more than those incremental three three moves in the, in the move at the end of the month. Uh, we need to get to the market where the market is feeling that the Fed is in, in control of the situation, ahead of the situation. That would mean a positively slow yield curve. And the extent that uh, that's what we want, um, I think it's going to be uh, probably force their hand for a couple more moves. So I think we're going to get one in October, and then I think we really have to entertain 
perhaps not in December, but probably another one shortly thereafter. So at least probably two more moves, and then we'll sort of have to see how things play out. Okay. Well, thanks for all that information, Scott, and thank you for uh, filling in for Marco. We appreciate it. Uh, We'll keep a close eye on what uh, the Fed does here in October, and uh, we'll discuss that during our next podcast. So thank you. Appreciate you having me. Next, I'm joined by uh, Frame Panic. He's been involved in fixed income investments for over 16 years, and he's responsible for our automotive, utilities, and basic material industries. So, welcome, Afreem. Well, thanks for having me, Pat. So, today you spoke with us about the auto industry, and to me, I think it's the most fascinating industry out there. Um, it involves trade, technology, government policy, and it's it's so critical to not only our economy, but the worldwide economy. So I think this is a great topic. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your, uh, your outlook is for the industry in general. Uh, sure. So we just uh, went negative on the industry with regards to outlook. And the reason for that, it's all the factors that you just mentioned that would impact sales globally that at the current time remain highly uncertain, like uh, trade policy, uh, Brexit, uh, slowdown in manufacturing activity around the globe. Uh, for that reason and the uncertainty, we decided to put a negative outlook on the, on the sector. Just looking broadly, we expect global auto sales to be declining in 2020 compared to 2019. Here in the U.S., we expect uh, peak auto sales uh, at around 16.5, uh, 17 million to continue in the future year. Uh, that's that's 16.5 to 17 million units per year, right? That is correct. Okay. Uh, we expect the mix to remain solid with larger, more expensive cars being sold. Uh, and less uh, mid-size and small cars. Looking forward to Europe, uh, this market continues to be in a perpetual uh, oversupply. We expect those sales to decline 2 to 3% uh, the next year. Uh, Japan remain in the anemic growth at around 0 to 1% uh, growth. Uh, and more importantly, the Chinese auto sales we expect 2020 to be also weak compared to 2019, uh, following a year that saw sales decline so far year to date about 10% for the first six months of the year and the second half that should be around flat. But uh, overall, the global uh, auto sales should decline in 2020. Uh, given these four geographies that we just cover. I just recall that if we were near 17 million units sold domestically, that that generally meant the auto industry was pretty healthy. But uh, it's, like you said, it's it's not right now. And uh, maybe you could tell us why that is. Is it is China that important in, to the auto industry now? A lot of the manufacturers uh, have a footprint in China. Some manufacture locally, some uh, export their cars uh, from uh, different regions. Uh, China currently, as we look into 2020, uh, represents almost half of the global auto sales. Wow. Uh, So just to put in perspective, the global auto sales, uh, call it around 100 million cars, 
around 60% of the total comes uh, from emerging markets, with uh, China being 50 to 60% of the total. So Chinese uh, sales drive global automotive growth or declines. Okay, so we'll have to keep an eye on uh, the any type of policy changes they have in China to uh, get a read on whether or not that uh, sector recovers. So. It's it's very important. Uh, the government policy is going to drive uh, sales, as we saw in prior years. Uh, if they target the stimulus in the auto industry, that could really drive growth. Uh, and we have not seen any other than some targeted uh, electric vehicle at the high end of the spectrum. Okay. Uh, maybe we can pivot back to uh, a domestic issue and uh, talk about the GM strike. Maybe you can uh, just tell us what are the main issues that uh, workers are striking over and let us know who you ultimately think wins this strike. So we have uh, more of the same issues that have been uh, showing up in the past. we start with healthcare, the percentage of total that the GM would cover versus what the employee would cover. Uh, we got profit sharing, uh, what percentage of the total profits would be funneled back to the UAW workers uh, versus going to the shareholders. Uh, we have some planes that have announced closings. Uh, UAW is trying to bring new product to those planes. Uh, and then starting wages, GM wants more flexibility and temporary labor uh, versus uh, union workers. Uh, there is a discrepancy of $15 an hour difference in price for GM uh, to go to a temporary worker. And also going forward, what percentage of the workforce remains flexible versus unionized? Uh, we think the, the root problem in this uh, discussions is the fact that the industry is changing to producing more electric vehicles that require much less factory space and much less labor to the tune of 30 to 40% less. And we think that the labor gets it. Uh, and ultimately, GM will continue to, to drive a hard bargain and this strike could go on for longer than people expect. But ultimately, GM should yield some benefits and be closer to their target than the unions, in our opinion. Okay. And since you mentioned electric vehicles and that being the root uh, issue of this strike, maybe you can give us your thoughts on that sector of the industry and uh, adoption rates of electric vehicles overall. So in general today, only 2% of the cars sold globally are electric. Uh, There are surveys and studies done by Bloomberg, Morgan Stanley, and others that call for 55% of all new car sales by 2040 to be electric, and them going forward representing about 30% of the total fleet. So let me just repeat that. So right now, the adoption rate or the market penetration rate is 2%, and these outside sources are suggesting will reach 55% in the next 21 years. That is correct. Okay. They also expect that the parity in cost between uh, electric vehicles and internal combustion engine technology should be reached uh, around mid-2020s, late 2020s. So it would cost you the same to buy an electric vehicle versus a gasoline-powered vehicle. 
Okay. So uh, maybe we can wrap it up on a fun note. I know you were recently in Europe for a due diligence meeting, and, and you had the opportunity to drive a number of different types of uh, cars. Maybe you can let the audience know what was your favorite car that you drove and why. Uh, Pat, I'll be honest with you. Uh, it would be a result that I did not expect to be the case, but the Tesla Model 3 was the most fun to drive, and it almost felt like you were in an airplane with regards to acceleration, uh, and and handling was amazing as well. So surprisingly, I think Tesla is here to stay and going to do great things going forward. Uh, we'll see if the car goes from being a luxury item to an industry disruptor in the near term, uh, I'm sure. Thanks for the update on the auto industry, and thank you for listening to the Portfolio Fix. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, please reach out to your portfolio manager or contact our marketing team at aamcompany.com. That's A as in asset, A as in allocation, M as in management, company.com. During our next podcast, Marco will review the uh, economic notes that Scotty just mentioned, and Pete Wirtala, our insurance strategist, will join us. We hope you will too. Thank you.